and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz. And we're talking today about estate planning for the problem child, dealing with addiction, slackers, and bad marriages. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We're pleased to have with us today Jillian Wagenheim, founder and principal consultant at Certus Consulting, and Mary Gillardi, attorney and principal at Gillardi Law. And uh, before we get started, Mary, why don't you tell us, uh, tell our audience a little bit about who you are. I have a practice in Brookhaven. My uh, estate planning, wills, trusts, probate, I deal with a lot of families. Families are my favorite thing to, to talk about when we're talking about estate planning, money and families. All right. And Jillian? I'm based in Midtown, Atlanta, and um, I work with families of multi-generational wealth on the integration of the next generation into their family philanthropy and or family enterprise. All right. Well, let's kind of start off. So... For each of you, I'll ask kind of the same question. What kind of challenges, we won't use the word problems yet, what kind of challenges are you seeing for families in your planning or but whether it be planning for the wills or planning for the multi-generation, how we continue this family and, and, and pass on the wealth? Mary, let's start with you. In my experience, it's unusual to have a family where there are three children and they are all financially stable and everything is going great. The dog, they love the in-laws and... Everybody is responsible and holds a job, and their children are wonderful. It's more likely that they come in and at least one or maybe more of their children or the in-laws are, have some problems, have difficulties. They, they are either have some drug problems or just don't want to work and want to live in the basement, or their children are doing something that they, the, my clients think they shouldn't be doing, and they're worried about giving them any big lump sums of money or even a regular stream of money sometimes? Well, since I work on the behavioral side um, of, of working with families, I'm not a therapist, but um, I, do, I do work specifically on behavior and not on uh, financial or legal aspects. I think the biggest thing that I see is, is issues around communication and finding common language and fear around expressing expectations. Let's start with the addiction issues then. Uh, when you're dealing with a family who knows that one of their children has some sort of an addiction issue, how do you advise that kind of client and, and, and how do you plan for that? Well, I, you know, my goal is that, and many times it's not met, my goal is for the family, if they're at least speaking to each other while the parents are alive, I want them to at least speak to each other after the parents are gone. And so sometimes it's a discussion of not necessarily treating them equally, but having the appearance of treating them equally. For example, setting up a trust for one child during their lifetime and putting a corporate trustee in place while the other child, we set up the trust for them, even though in normal circumstances, we would have just paid the money outright to that child. But there's a trust in place for them. And, but a lot of times that child can be their own trustee because we know that they're going to be financially responsible with the money. But at least it gives the child who's the trust is set up for basically gives the appearance that they're being treated equally with their sibling. Does the, does the non-addicted uh, child, uh, uh, the way that does he or she 
get upset by the restraints put on them just for the appearance. I mean, in a weird kind of way, you're dealing with a sibling that's having a problem and they're having a problem. You've probably had to deal with that during life. And now there's a trust or some type of mechanism set up and your access to whatever your inheritance is, is having the similar restrictions just because of that same sibling who's caused you problems. How does the non-addicted sibling react to the appearance of fairness? And Jillian can probably address this, but I have a recent case where the um, the father died and the two trusts were set up for his two children. The one son who is financially responsible was told before the father died that this was what was going to happen. And I was part of the planning and now I'm, I'm part of the administration of it. So I am able to also discuss with that child, this is what your your dad had in mind when these two trusts were set up. But he was well aware of it before the father died. So that's kind of best case scenario, in my opinion, because there was transparency and there was a discussion um, before it was actually the plan was implemented. And, and, and discussion with the children, I mean, by the Discussion clients. with the son, not necessarily with the daughter. I mean, I think she knew that there was a trust being set up, but I don't know that she is aware that brother is his own trustee. We set up two separate trusts, two separate documents so that daughter doesn't ever see brother's trust. Now, brother sees daughter's trust because he's also the administration administrator of the estate. But so far, it's, it's now it hadn't been very long. It's been about six months, but so far it's been working. Like Jill, Jillian, sure. how do you initiate that conversation with either of your children, the one that's financially secure and the one that's struggling? That's where somebody like myself comes in is, is to have a facilitator, to have somebody there that um, can help the family find common language, can find a way to, um, to communicate. But I think what Mary was saying was, was really important, which is that in any relationship, in any good relationship, there are shared expectations um, and there's communication around those shared expectations. So the, the son who is is not the identified patient, right? He's he's um, right. successful. Uh, he was able to be privy to more information where the daughter is is not able to maybe handle that information and 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 is getting the information she needs to to move forward as well, but not not the full picture. But I think I think having conversations around around what to expect prior. Um, are, are really important for the success of a family because, um, as we were kind of talking before the show started, if you don't have those those conversations, all hell will break loose. Well, you also have the problem of, of parents who want, who want to name the successful child mm -hmm. as uh, the trustee, not only of their own trust, but of, of the trust of the child who's got the dependency issue. And let's just ask the question, is that a good idea? No. I would, yes, I would agree <laughs> that that is. Well, that was too quick an answer. Yeah, that creates a power dynamic. And where Mary was alluding to this um, implication of equalness, right, um, and, or equality, that's what you want to maintain, right? That, that there's not a power dynamic between uh, the two children. And, and let's, let's underscore that because we see this in the conflict side as a common theme of having a power dynamic. Mm -hmm. Then we want to avoid that not just with the problem child, but with any children. 
So let, let's really emphasize that point because I think it's, it's rather important. I think important. it's important in that situation to have a corporate trustee put in place. A, a non-family member makes all the difference in the world, especially with any child who has an addiction problem. If there's somebody who is not related, there's no family history, they have a, a, a disinterested, for the most part, bias in this. They don't, they just want to follow the trust document and what the trust says. They don't care if the child, they care, but they don't, they don't play to whatever the child is saying they need right now. A corporate trustee is going to follow the rules of the trust. Well, they're going to be more objective, but a lot, a lot of parents will say, well, you know, my, my son, my successful son, you know, he's a family member. He knows the problems we've had. We've had these problems for a long time. And while I a corporate trustee would be uh, more objective. Uh, my son is is really more aware of how to deal with my daughter and, and what things she needs or doesn't need. And how do you do you talk the clients out of that, or do you sort of work through what that means in reality? Well, I think it's important to recognize that um, individuals exist within the family system, right? And so this idea that. Um, one child would know how to deal with another child better may be just furthering a dysfunctional dynamic within that family system. You mean enabling? Enabling, yes. <laughs> to use a technical um, term. Yeah. And that if you are trying to um, bring about change within that system, that continuing along the same patterns that have perpetuated the dysfunction, um, such as creating power dynamics between between siblings or um, reinforcing behavior that's existed, um, is not going to create any um, alleviation of, of what's been going on in the past. And so bringing in somebody from the outside is probably the best scenario as a way to provide somebody who is... Um, is not connected to the family and and can be objective in in because that's, that's is, there, is there anything here. is there anything wrong with a parent saying I don't want my my successful child to have their inheritance uh, in trust I want them to get it outright it's there again that's where it's not going to be uh, they're creating a a problem for their children later on. And I don't know any parent that I've ever met that says, I do not want my children to speak to each other after I'm gone. You can, though, do things even within a trust, give the beneficiary the financially secure or, or emotionally secure, perhaps, child more powers, a power that says, I can demand a, 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 a distribution, I can control investments, that in the trust document is different. Would things yes. like that do work? yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's where it's it's good sometimes to have that just totally separate trust documents for each child and to have different different terms in those trust documents so that each child doesn't know what the other one other child's trust says. Let, so let me ask a question about the trust itself. You had said a, an independent trustee will do a better job following what the trust says. Are you saying that the trust should set out guidelines for the either already addicted or troubled child or for the potentially addicted or troubled child? I mean, how does the trustee know what he or she's supposed to do? By the trust document. Uh, my, my standard form has a paragraph in it that says the trustee has the right to withhold distributions if the child is, has a drug problem or is going through a bankruptcy or a divorce. 
there are terms in that document that allow the trustee to not make the payments, but it is based on the trustee's judgment at that point. So it gives the trustee much flexibility and the parents or the parents have to agree that that's the way they want the trust to work. But you're talking about guidelines that, that both instruct the beneficiary of how they are to behave in the future, as well as guidelines for the trustee about how they're going to make discretionary decisions. True, right? but I don't know that a trust, you'd know this better than I do. I don't know that a trustee or a beneficiary is always going to think that that term applies the way that the trustee thinks that term applies. No, they, they often don't. Well, <laughs> give some examples of direction. Like, for example, would you tell the trustee, please encourage my child to seek treatment? Or if my child seeks treatment and solves this temporal problem, they kind of go back to normal. I mean, what kind of, of tell me what your toolbox is of things that you can tell a trustee that might help both the trustee and the troubled child. I have anywhere from a paragraph to five pages of instructions for a trustee. And it just depends on talking with my client, the parents, what kinds of terms they want in the trust document. And it certainly can be as limiting as making sure that the child has a drug test every year or every however often to make sure that they are actually not um, using before they can get a distribution. So there are many um, restrictions that you can place into a trust. However, um, I recently had a trust with just one simple paragraph about being able to withhold distributions. We didn't have any problem at all. The mom liked having that paragraph in there. Her sons are fine, but we- Just in case. We, she was just in case. And, and we don't ever know what the in-laws are gonna be doing either. Oh. And so we, but we passed that in front of a, a, the corporate trustee and they made us take it out. They wouldn't accept that trust with that paragraph in there. So when you have those kinds of terms, you're going to have to really shop trustees to make sure that they will follow those guidelines. And well, if you're looking for a corporate trustee, that they will accept those guidelines that well, you're putting in the document. Well, a lot, a lot of times you're talking about the, the parents who, who, you know, knowingly or not, enable the kind of behavior that they're now concerned about. And, Absolutely. And, and Jillian, maybe I'll ask, ask you this question. I mean, what, what kind of guidelines are you putting in documents that, that, that are essentially saying, I was unable to do this while I was alive. Now you, the independent trustee who don't know my family, you are now faced with trying to do this after I'm gone. I mean, how do you... Yeah. So I actually don't deal with any documents that are... are um, you know, post postmortem and, and that deal with, with anybody um, after death. What I try and do is bring light to situations where there may be failure to recognize that there is a problem. So and in advance. In advance, right. And so that I don't believe in waiting until the will is read. Let's, let's focus on what are the issues now? How can we create awareness and empathy and provide boundaries that you know, help the family work towards moving forward as opposed to being stuck in whatever perpetuated system that they're in currently. Right. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with Jillian Wagenheim, founder and principal consultant at Certus Consulting, and Mary Gallardi, attorney and principal at Gallardi Law. I want to follow up on something, Jillian, you just said. You talked about that you're trying very hard prior to 
what in Japan they call the tax uh, trigger event as opposed to death. Um, they don't like mm -hmm. to talk about death. Sometimes the problem with a family member doesn't arise until after death. Is there the same opportunity to talk to the family about maybe we need to address this issue, even though there wasn't advanced planning? So um, if you could expound a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, what, like, I mean, what, 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 what I mean by that is you've got a family that's doing relatively well. Mm -hmm. um, you've got generation one and generation two. The kids are 20, 25 years old, and now there's a death, and they've passed the money either directly or in trust. But the thirty-five, but not ten years later, the thirty now thirty-five-year-old has a back problem, mm -hmm. and ultimately results in an opioid addiction that really wasn't anticipated. Mm -hmm. And this is really happening around the country. So there was no advanced planning for this because really no one expected of it. Mm -hmm. But now it's happened, or it's happened to a spouse of one of your children, or a grandchild who didn't exist or was a minor at the time. It can, is there ways or should we be thinking about ways to talk to the family even after the planning is in place? Yeah, I mean, I think um, where where somebody like myself would come in is is how is it affecting the structure of the family foundation or donor advised fund, whatever structure they have in place for their for their family philanthropy and or family enterprise and understanding that there are two different systems at play here. One, you have the family system, which usually creates a sense of empathy or guilt or feelings of how, how can we help, but we don't really want to approach or what, what do we do and trying to cover up whatever the situation is. And then you have more of a business system where you, if you have a family office or you have um, a family enterprise where they're, you know, a family run business where there are legal implications um, and there are issues that arise if that family member is involved in the running, the daily runnings of, of a business enterprise. And how do you, especially if that person is in a power position, uh, if they're CEO, COO, you know, one of, one of the top positions, how you approach it from, from the business system standpoint and, and how is it affecting um, that, which can cause also a lot of anxiety. And, um, and so I think that, you know, obviously you can't predict these things, right? Well, well but Craig's question uh, raises the additional question of, you know, given the possibility that anybody could end up with an addiction type problem in the future, should you set up every will such that there is a trust established and there is a potential for a, a an independent trustee to make those decisions after the fact? A no. what if a what if clause? No, mm -hmm. no, that's really not fair to the family. I I think Mike's experience has been that uh, most families, you guys don't see it, but I see it. Most families step up to the plate and they do, they do have good kids. They do are responsible and they use the money responsibly. So you can't, you know, there's, there's kind of the dead hand planning. You cannot plan for the, from the grave for the rest of your descendants forever. What about just including a clause that says, if there's an addiction problem, I empower, if there's a trustee, the trustee to do something. Oh, the one-liner that you talked about that one of your clients wanted just in case. Certainly. Is that something we should have? If there is a trust set up in the will already. And mm -hmm. yes, I mean, like like I said, that's my standard clause in my, my documents when there is a trust in place. It gives the trustee the flexibility to make those decisions if that kind of thing comes up. What, what, do, what do you do if a, a client of yours wants to leave either more to uh, for the benefit of the child with the addiction problem because they think they will need more to deal with these issues or less to them because they think if they give them too much money, they're going to 
use it to uh, overdose. Every time somebody brings something up where they're not treating all of their children equally, I bring up the, the story of a good friend of mine who was fairly well off and had a really good job. His dad left more money to his sisters than he did to him. Because, because they had greater need? Because they had taken care of the father. And they did. He, the father thought they had greater need. My client was, was very spiritual. And I said, what, how did that make you feel? And he said, I spent a lot of time on my knees, mm-hmm. accepting that my father still loved me as much as them, that this was not that kind of thinking. But, wait, wait, but wait. no matter what. It, but, I but, think, but, but the father sat them down and said, I'm going to set them all down together and said, I'm going to leave you a little more than, than you because you need it more. He understood that. He understood that. But it still, it still is, hurt. you know, a CPA said to me one time, mama gave you a bigger piece of pie. And that's exactly what it is. It's, it's that feeling it never goes away. And, and, I, I, and I will tell you, even in our conflicts, what when you're dealing with somebody who's passed away, the question is, you know, how do they love me? Did they love me as much as my sister? The relationships are based on the relationships with siblings at age 12. And really the only way to measure it is money. So when you give different money, it still hurts because you feel like you're measuring love. But I think most parents um, are well-intentioned, right? They're, they're doing this because they feel like they need to leave more to one sibling, or they're doing this because there are two two children with spouses and one child who is unmarried, and so they split. They feel like their their in-laws are are children of theirs as well. So they give a fifth to each person, but then the child who's unmarried feels like they didn't get the fair share. All of these are well-intentioned things. But if if there is no communication and you are finding out about this at the point of, of a death where your emotions are already high and you're already upset, and then you add this without the answers, you can't go back. When somebody's gone, you can't go back and ask them. And so even with the most wonderfully laid out documents, if there's no explanation as to intention, you're going to create problems. How do I, so my dad is 86 year old. He's extremely bright. Um, He doesn't talk about money or these things. It's not part of his generation, but the majority of us, majority of our listeners the person who's going to die now, the average age today, if you are born today, your life expectancy is 88 years. That is the current life expectancy of somebody born today. It's only going to get older. 10% of our society will be over 100 years old, something that never existed before. I mean, over 90, I'm sorry, within like 10 years. How, how do I initiate that conversation to, to get my 85-year-old father to talk to me? And I, I'm not 10 years old or 20 years old. I am arguably substantially older, both in age and maturity. Mm-hmm. How do, how do Ar- I get arguably, to do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think, again, that that's where a trusted advisor can come into play and help kind of bring up these conversations if it is uncomfortable, because you're right, there are generational personalities and perspectives that, that um, make people afraid to talk about wealth, sex, other kinds of things, death. The, all of those kinds of things that that are kind of taboo in society, but if we can start the conversation at what are our values and and what's important, and you know, asking your dad what are his intentions, what if he could if he could give you some some life lessons or what are the things that you know, just start that start an open conversation about 
about what what's important to him. What has he learned over his life? And then if you start with a softer kind of conversation, it can lead to some of those deeper issues and some of those deeper conversations. Do, do you ever facilitate those kinds of meetings for clients who are just un, unable to sit down with all their kids and talk honestly with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have all I have lots of tools that that help kind of bring up questions around giving, around wealth, around values, money messaging, generational personalities and perspectives, all, various various kinds of conversation starters that help families kind of elevate the conversation that they're, most, most families, even if they're seeing each other on a regular basis, are not having these kinds of conversations. Particularly with the grandkids. All you want to do is play with the kids. Right. Let, let's shift, shift topics now. Another area that we see a lot of problems is that a child is considered less responsible. The slacker child, the ne'er-do-well, or the perceived slacker child and the ne'er-do-well. We see these problems too, but I'm going to ask the question in a funny way, both for the, the, the kid who is not as responsible or the kid that has an addiction issue, and it doesn't arise until after death. Mary, are there ways post-mortem to do planning that might protect the child or the family? And it's after the fact, it's after the wealth has been transferred, either in trust or outright. Are there ways to deal with that? The only way I know of is to have the trust set up prior to the death. Can is it, that is there inter, Yeah, well, is there intervention, for example, could you agree to change the terms of a trust or could you agree to bring it in and create a trust after the fact or to add a trustee or change a trustee? Are there things that we can do or are these really require the buy-in of the problem child? They require the buy-in of the problem child. Even if, you know, I've had many situations where there was a a gift to minors, a, an account set up for a child that has to be paid out at the age of 21. And sometimes that's a substantial amount of money. I, I've had them where they're close to a million dollars. And fortunately, at that point, usually the child is still influenced enough by the parents uh, that we can bring them in and chat with them about going ahead and setting up a trust for that money with the child as the beneficiary, but with the parent or someone else as the trustee of those funds. And it's been pretty effective. I did have one child who who said he wanted to buy a guitar. So his mother agreed to let him buy a, a pretty expensive guitar, but then the rest of the money was put into a trust for his benefit. So those fair. are extremely <laughs> those are extremely helpful tools. But so, these person I would say that these personality traits, this, you know, this idea of the who's a spender, who's a saver, you know, those kinds of things tend to show themselves pretty early on. So if you're aware of who your children are and the differences that exist, then you can you should be able to address those. It's I think that the the issue is that a lot of families are in denial, right? Um, and they don't, they look blindly at their children. Love is blind. Well, and, you and, but, but you're right. Personalities uh, show themselves very early mm-hmm. on. And uh, it's, it, once you've given them a lot of money, it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to think their personality is going to change in a way that is better for them. Right. They so, become, they, that's right. They've just enabled sort of exa- them. Yeah, just right. And they have an expectation. So, so, so what do you do? You know your child's a spender. So, so what, are, yeah, what are some of the toolkits that you can use? So now you know it. And what can you do? You talked about a corporate trustee for, for an addiction issue. I do want to note that if you're they're not feeling comfortable, the corporate trustee, in making a drug issue, that, that kind of discretion is too big. Georgia would allow you to appoint whatever you want to call it, a trust advisor, a trust protector, a third person who may help you with those decisions. Correct. So you can take it around. But what else, what could you do to, what are some of the other tools? We've talked about a trust as a tool. 
We've talked about having, you know, some discretion within the trustee. What else could we do for the child who is less financially responsible or the child who's having an addiction issue? What other tools do we have? In estate planning? Yes, ma'am. You're going to have to help me out with that. Well, for example, where are you going with that one? Do you uh, do you want to have? Uh, could you you could do drug testing or require it? Would be an example. Well, that's going to be within the trust document. Okay. Right. Yeah. What what what, uh, what all what, of those terms would well, be in the trust document when you're doing the estate planning part of it? But, Tell but, me but what generally, generally with, with, with regard to a, a child who's a spendthrift, you're talking about making sure their assets are in trust, so that there's someone else who's going to say, "No, you can't buy another car. You just bought a car last year." Um, things right. like right, and and you can include in the trust that these assets are only given out to the extent that they don't have assets of their own that they can spend. So in those situations, it makes a, a child who who is a spendthrift actually go through their funds first, uh, as opposed to tapping the trust every time they think they want something. So, so, so all right. You, even if you discuss with your children, I'm going to leave everything uh, that's going to child one outright because we trust them, and I'm going to leave everything in trust uh, for child two. And I've told you I'm going to do that so you, you all understand that. One of the problems that will arise is the, the, what would outright to child one can be given to that child's spouse or to anybody else when they die, whereas what went in trust for child two is going to be uh, dictated by that trust. And it generally, it's going to say it goes to my child, and then when my child dies, it goes to their children. The, the spouse is going to get cut out. Everybody knows that's what can happen, and that often creates hard feelings on top of the fact that that my shares and trust and not yours. That's right. And, and I do have that discussion with my clients that whatever they give out right to that child could go to the rogue daughter-in-law, that it could go to somebody that they don't want it to go to. Um, and so we do have that discussion. But a lot of times my clients are of the mindset that at that point, it's the child's money and they should be able to do with it what they want. Now, those are the people that their children are not having problems. Their children are not addicted to drugs or they don't have that kind of situation in their family. Let, let's talk age groups because it seems to me when, you know, the first will I really did seriously and maybe I'm admitting something I shouldn't was after my first child was born. And that was a lot different than today. And it's certainly a lot different. I hope I live a couple more years than I'll be some years from now. Does, does the, I, I trust my child to distribute the money. It's their money differ when you're writing a will when you're age 50 for your teenage kid versus when you're 80 and you're now doing it for your 50-year-old kid? Well, good for you for at least doing one when you first had a child. I have clients who come in when their children are in their 30s and 40s and they are very guilty feeling about their will, but they haven't needed it, so they're fine. Yes, and, and a lot of times if I have a young couple who come in and have a baby, it's very difficult for us to talk about the point when the child is 25 30 and 35, when we talk about trust, trust distributions. So, but you do the best that you can at that age when their children are that age. However, it's not the only will they're ever going to have. Although I do want to note many, many times the will we see was written 40 years ago. Right. They forget to do a new will. And it is amazing what things you see in there because they didn't think about the fact that their child may be 40 and drug addicted. And I tell my clients that I will send them a letter every three years saying, pull your will out, read it, let me know if you have any changes. Typically, changes occur about every five to 10, uh, at the most, maybe 15 years, because their life changes, their fiduciaries change over time, and their children change. And a lot of times we will set up a trust for children when they're babies, but then when the children turn 30 and we have a trust that goes out to age 45, the parents come in and say, I don't want that trust anymore. I want it to go directly to the children. Or 
they come in and say, I have a problem child. We need to make sure that this money is held in trust throughout their lifetime. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Your hosts today are Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel with the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We are talking with Mary Gillardy, an attorney and principal at Gillardy Law, and with Jillian Wagenheim, founder and principal consultant at Sirtis Consulting. What about situations where you, most of your clients, I assume, want to leave their assets to lineal descendants, not to spouses. But sometimes you have a situation where um, you know that one of your children uh, has a, uh, an illness, uh, cancer, something like that. You know they're going to die relatively young, and they have young children. You don't want to just leave uh, the estate that would have gone to your child to their children, to the young grandchildren. So you will leave that estate to the surviving spouse. But you mainly do it with that one child and not the other children. You- in that situation, I mean, you can set it up so that a, uh, you can set the document up so that a trust is set up for all of the children. And then if they, um, if something happens and that money needs to go to their descendants, it goes on to their descendants. Or, and you can set it up so that uh, each of the children are their own trustee and you give them the flexibility of pulling the money out if they want to be able to pull the money out. So it, it gives uh, a little more flexibility in the planning. Do you, do you ever see situations where, um, where you trust one of your in-law children, your, your daughter-in-law from one marriage, but not the daughter-in-law from another? So you want to make sure that one has access to funds and the other does not? Or is that I don't obviously know. it creates a problem? It does. And I don't know that I have run into that situation. I think we probably, I've probably had discussions with clients, but there again, it's, it's really difficult to treat one son better because you like his wife better than and the I, other one. And I do want to note that when we're talking about in-laws, you know, husbands-in-law, wives-in-law, spouse-in-law, whatever the issue, that what we're really talking about is first or second spouse-in-law, that statistically, you know, half of everybody is going to be divorced. And if we could predict that in advance, that would be a wonderful thing, but we cannot. It would also be wonderful if we could predict when we're going to die, but we cannot. A, a wonderful thing. So it's very hard to, to do that. Right. Should we be thinking about, again, because of the aging population, if you are fortunate enough to not die at a younger age, so now your children are adults, are we finding that a lot of planning needs to be thinking or is starting to think about the next generation? Should we start having or thinking about having guarantees or some protections for our grandchildren? which may also include that we have no idea whether they're going to have drug issues or addiction issues or financial need issues or responsibility issues. Are we seeing or should we start thinking about planning for the third generation? When I have, when I set up documents with, with generally somebody who's in their 60s or 70s, I always take into consideration that they might outlive a child or two. And so I usually include a trust in that document. You know, they might want to be, give everything outright to their surviving children, but their their grandchildren, we need to make sure that funds are held in trust for at least a period of time for them until they're at least 25 or, or even better, 30, so that they're out of college and have been educated. And they don't get this big lump sum of money at the age of 21 or, or even 18 if their parent doesn't survive them. And Jillian, are you having conversations with your families and saying, you know, this is a, some wealth, 
even if it's not huge wealth, that you need to be start thinking about the grandkids even before perhaps then you even have them. Yeah. I mean, well, in terms of, um, in terms of the values, right, we, we see a lot of um, this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves aspect, right? So by the third generation, 90% of the wealth is gone. Um, so I think the importance that I stress is in the conversation around values. So one of people that I look up to is a neuropsychologist um, and uh, named Jim Grubman. And he talks about people who are new to wealth. So the wealth makers are like new immigrants to a country, right? So they're bringing their old values with them. And they ha- oftentimes have this, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. And by the third generation, they G3 is is totally... Um, and by G3, you mean generation three. Generation three, yes. Uh, is is well into this idea of, or this lifestyle, right? And so um, if we can talk about values, we can talk about what got a... a the first generation there, um, share stories um, and family narratives, then there's a lot greater chance that the wealth will survive to generation three and beyond. And, and, I, do, and I do want to talk about a word that I find helpful. I find that the second generation is the generation that expects an inheritance. The third generation is the generation that feels entitled. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where you get your problems. So mm-hmm. you're talking about if you talk about it, you might be able to avoid that. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, if, if, there are, if there are messages that have been passed down about what, you know, hard work and struggle and not just a lifestyle that has been provided, that conversations around money messages and, and what, it, what money means. Um, what is a money message? So money messages are um, the thing are, that we're all ruined by. Yeah. <laughs> well, not not necessarily, but but many, yes. So um, money is not just money, right? Money carries a lot of weight and emotional baggage, um, and and um, that is greater than than what is the actual sum of the dollars, right? Um, sometimes it represents the, the values that the family keeps passing down. Exactly. Save for a rainy day, you know, and, there's, and it's never rainy enough to spend that money, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So if you talk about, um, you know, a lot of traditionalists, a lot of people born from 1925 to 1946 have that save for a rainy day because they've lived through the Great Depression. And so they believe that, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned. And and um, and, and as an aside, people who, who were poor growing up and are no longer poor, tend to have those same sorts of attitudes about money. Exactly. So that's that's where you have that that generation 1 mentality of of working hard and saving and and a, a different relationship than somebody who was born into wealth and maybe has the message there will always be enough, mm-hmm. right? You will never you will never starve, you will never go hungry, you will never not be safe. Um, and so there are a lot of feelings that happen from that in terms of you know, the money's coming in and out and, and there's not a real appreciation for what a dollar is. So the idea that we can talk about what are the conscious messages that we want to teach our children and maybe some of those unconscious messages that get passed along that we don't even realize that we're, that we're actually passing along. And we often pass different messages on to different children, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So... so- 
Go ahead. I was going to say, in terms of preserving wealth, since we were on that topic, uh, what, do, what do you do when you know that one of your children is a voracious saver and uh, is going to continue to grow the family's assets and another child, you know, f- for better or worse, uh, thinks that money ought to do something else and their inclination is to either give it away to charity or to use it to, uh, to, to put back into their community. But, but one way or another is not going to maintain that pool of assets for the third generation. Well, I think, I think since you brought it up, I think, um, and because that's, this is a space that I work in, philanthropy is a wonderful way to teach financial acumen. Um, it is separate, usually a separate pot from the, the overall family wealth. It's a way for us to talk about how do we make decisions and how do we look at values and, and what, what's for the good of, what, what can our money do as opposed to what is what it what do we have what is our money doing for us right what can we um who are we and what are we hoping to accomplish with that so i think that philanthropy is is a really wonderful way to to have conversations around money that are easier a lot of parents don't want to be transparent as you as you mentioned earlier about what their overall financial wealth is because they don't want to create expectation um, but money does seem to be the last taboo that people won't talk about Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we talk about politics. We talk about religion. We talk about sex. We, we don't. We don't talk about politics anymore. <laughs> Apparently, that is taboo. <laughs> We're getting towards the end of the show, so I want to ask you. I mean, I'll start with Mary. Tell our listeners where you have done planning for a family that had a problem child that ended up successful. That the problem child recovered, and it was in some part because of what you and the family were able to do. Give us a a, a happy story. Oh boy, <laughs> put me on the spot. I, well, you know, actually, I, I think we can, I can talk about my own family. Uh, I had a couple of, I, there are six of us, and, and I had a couple of siblings who we thought might not be using the money correctly. But I, I think that the planning was that my dad would live long enough that they would actually become responsible. That's kind of what happened. I mean, I think we don't anticipate sometimes that, that people actually do grow up and they do change a little bit. So our listeners need to plan to live long. Exactly. Okay. The parents can or spend all their money. Yep. Or, or, or plan for the problem child, but make sure the planning includes the opportunity to improve. Well, and, and I do have situations like that where the, the trust has been set up for the child who was addicted to drugs and alcohol and has been through treatment, you know, five, ten times but actually does finally come out on the other side. And I don't know if it's age or or just the treatment finally stuck. And, you know, the child is now 40 and responsible and holding a job. And those funds were there to use for his uh, treatment. And it worked. And it worked. That's great. Jillian, your chance. Tell us a success story. You got five seconds. Go. No, well, I mean, I think I want to come back to something that you asked earlier and, and kind of um, go off what Mary was saying was these problems are not just for other people, right? They happen within our own families as well. And you asked, how do you start a conversation with your father who's an older- I hope my dad's not listening. <laughs> the good news is he doesn't know when her internet is. Or, or Mary, or Mary Or my family, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I hope my parents are listening because I actually have started this conversation several times with them. And I say several times. Yeah, but your parents are 40. <laughs> no, they wish. <laughs> so my, my dad will actually be 70 in December. And so I have started this conversation, but it is a conversation that is ongoing. And I think that that's a really important um, point to note that uh, this is not a one-time thing that 
um, to have conversations about someone's mortality and to um, to bring up financial issues. These are all things that are very sensitive topics and family dynamics and having having conversations about your fears about another sibling um, and what that will mean once your parents are gone. These these are things that take time and um, and may not happen in one sit down. But so don't wait. That's don't the message. Wait. Don't exactly. wait. Exactly. Exactly. Start it sooner because it's gonna. It's an evolving conversation. Well, we're near the end of the show. And so before we cut off, Mary, tell our listeners if they want to talk to you and ask you more questions, how do they get in touch with you? They can go to my website, gallardilaw.com, G-A-L-A-R-D-I-L-A-W.com. And Jillian? They can um, go to my website, which is Certus Consults, S-E-R-T-U-S-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-S.com, or email me at jillian at certisconsults.com. As we wrap up our show today, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gasowich Frankel, please go to our website at gasowichfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Jillian Wagenheim, founder and principal consultant at Sturtis Consulting, and Mary Gillardy, an attorney and principal at Gillardy Law. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. (music) 